Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I do not have any information, nor have I been briefed, on any federal candidates receiving any money from China. This is an issue of national importance and concern. And the question is, is China interfering intentionally in the internal affairs of this country? And the the answer appears to be very clearly yes. Global News and Sam Cooper, who's been on this program, was with us last weekend and will be back next weekend. Sam was talking to us about that very issue that he's been uh, investigating. It was Global News that um, pointed out that the prime minister had been, in fact, uh, briefed on on situations that involve China engaging in interfering with our affairs in the 2019 election, particularly federal election. The prime minister says he, well, you heard what he said. He doesn't know anything about it. But as you've been hearing, it was the prime minister who went to the president of China, President Xi, and brought up this issue. And that's why Xi then confronted Trudeau and said, you took the content of our conversation, which was private, and you leaked it to media, and you know what happened. The whole story sprung up out of that. So I just want to play you, before we talk to our guest, I just want to play you a little more, and just have a listen to this, because it begins with a reporter's question to Mr. Trudeau, and it's at the very same time and place where the clip you just heard Originated. Listen to this. So just to be clear, sir, you learned about this, all these allegations when Global News first reported it. Um, these media reports were things that we took seriously. And we asked our uh, security of- officials to follow up on them. And we have asked them uh, to give all information that they can, to share what they can with the parliamentary committee looking into it. But again, let me be very clear. I have no information, and I get briefed up regularly from our intelligence and security officials. I have no information on any federal candidates receiving money from China. Okay. So, that's the Prime Minister's position. And the story, you know, has to do with China allegedly engaging Canadians in MPs' offices and uh, perhaps provincial members of legislatures as well, and interfering with our elections. More to come. You can count on it. There's a lot more to come. Now, I spoke a few weeks ago with Kenny Chu. Mr. Chu was was a conservative member of parliament in British Columbia, elected in 2019, and he fell into disfavor, I think it's fair to say, with Beijing over private members' legislation that Mr. Chu introduced. And uh, Mr. Chu has been talked about a great deal in Canadian media over the last numbers of weeks. And I've spoken to him before, and we're going to talk to him right now, about China interfering with his election campaign in 2021, so last year. Kenny, thank you for coming back on the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, Thank you for having me again, uh, Roy. Yeah. So you told me last time you lost in 2021, so last year, 
And you weren't, I mean, you, you believe that China was actively engaged in trying to derail your campaign, but you also said that wasn't the only reason that you lost. I want to be clear about that. But would you share with us, please, how you came to the conclusion that China and Beijing particularly uh, are, were actively engaged in trying to make sure that you didn't win again? The use of decision for nation um, in during campaign, uh, it's actually quite um, mind-boggling and eye-popping. Uh, there has been so much disinformation being spread in the social media that uh, a lot of my Chinese constituents uh, exclusively rely on that uh, any of such misinformation being circulated there will be uh, taken uh, completely as the truth. Uh, one of them, for example, is a mischaracterization of my private member bill um, requiring uh, foreign agents uh, acting on behalf of a certain country to be listed by the Privy Council officer um, that, uh, you know, if they act on behalf of a foreign country, then they will have to register and just uh, put it put it in the open light and, and under the sun so that, you know, Canadian medias and other uh, people can actually see their activities. It's not going to hamper their activity. For that uh, proposal, uh, some of the media are saying, I am going to jeopardize the uh, Chinese-Canadians, uh, anybody who has any connection with um, China. Uh, some of them, it's the homeland. And therefore, uh, academically, even just casual connections, uh, you will put yourself into uh, a, a, a pretty a serious, uh, potentially legal trouble. And this is a disinformation not just happening during the um, election. In fact, um, Conservative Senator uh, Leo Husakos uh, earlier this year had um, taken my bill and we tabled it in the Senate. But if you listen to uh, Senator Yun Pao Wu, uh, his uh, criticism on the bill, it is exactly the same kind of uh, talking points that the liberals and, and sorry, that the Chinese communists were using during the election, that uh, even inviting a volleyball team uh, or badminton team coming to Canada would have put the organization in, in jeopardy. Now, that is just farthest from the truth. And I was disappointed that uh, uh, the ethnic Chinese media were not uh, using the opportunity to clarify, to help um, educate may not be the right word, but to, to clear the water um, during the election. And I was also disappointed that uh, this misinformation continued to be propagated in our House of Senate um, during this debate um, of Leo Hosaku's, uh, Senator Leo Hosaku's bill in the Senate. So these, these are informations that are, are being circulated in WeChat, but also uh, being circulated in WhatsApp and other um, group chatting messages. And um, it, it's very powerful because it touches on uh, people's fear. Um, many of my constituents ask me that uh, 
you know, if I'm aware of, of course I am, what happened to Japanese Canadians during Second World War, um, that they are being incarcerated, that their, their properties have been um, taken over by the government, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, it was the Brian Moroni government that actually officially apologized to uh, the Japanese Canadians uh, episode that uh, we've seen in our country's history. So, uh, you know, drawing the parallel between that to my proposed um, bill uh, is not only the farthest from the truth, but it's also play on people's fear of what had happened in the past. And uh, the only beneficiary, uh, the benefactor factor in, in this situation would be um, predatorial uh, regimes that our country's um, apparatus, the security, national security apparatus have been warning parliamentarians. And these are namely uh, the Russians, the Iranians, and uh, the communist Chinese. Yes, so your legislation, your private member's bill, which was carried forward or picked up by Senator Sakos, who's been a guest on this program as well, uh, your private member's bill would have required agents of foreign countries who were lobbying the federal government to register, yes? that was That's the fundamentals, yes? Yes, that is correct. And And so Beijing... Why would they have considered that a threat? Well, um, I, I didn't want to, I, I guess I don't want to uh, answer um, on behalf of Beijing or the People's Republic of China. Um, you know, you would think that um, countries who conduct their um, lobbying business in open uh, would not uh, would not avoid that. In no, fact, it just seems like a completely reasonable piece of legislation to me. Yeah, absolutely. In the in the United States, they have this legislatures for many, many, many decades, over almost like a century. In fact, uh, you know, as I was researching for my private member bill, I saw the Liberal Party of Canada having an entry in 2019 because mm-hmm. they solicited the help of a of a congressman to do fundraising activities for Canadian compatriots in Washington D.C. So, you know, nobody's hiding anything. Everything is just on the Internet. You can do research and you can find that information. To, to suggest that they, they don't appreciate that tells you that there's something happening in the shadow. And they would, they would have preferred to avoid uh, all these questionings by uh, journalists, journalists such as yourself, um, or investigative journalists such as uh, Mr. Sam Cooper, uh, from finding exactly what, how much money and what exactly are they lobbying or trying to influence Canada. So I find this uh, really interesting because you received a visit, did you not, Kenny, from CSIS just a few days prior to the election? That is true. Um, however, technically, um, CSIS have been contacting me, have been visiting me since... Uh, 2021. Uh, soon after the pandemic, they start communicating with my MP office, and uh, we have met um, at these two times um, prior to the election. And during the election, as I start facing these disinformation, as my party, uh, as my leader back then, Mr. Emerald O'Toole, uh, has started 
being um, characterized in completely falsehood. Uh, I contacted CSIS. I collected some of the screenshots of um, reported, um, you know, spreading of this information. I contacted them and they responded by arranging uh, an in-person meeting with myself and I pass on all this information to them. Uh, that's 2021, um, maybe one week, 10 days prior to the election. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Now, you mentioned earlier on that um, Beijing had been active on WeChat. And for people who aren't familiar with WeChat, it is a very popular social media site. And uh, does, it, does it originate in China? Uh, yes, it, uh, it's, it's an all-in-one uh, mega app. Uh, it, it handles not just um, social media like Facebook posting um, articles, but also messagings. And um, if you use WhatsApp, uh, it also does um, telephone calls, encrypted messages, uh, and also uh, handle digital payment. Uh, it is the um, sanctioned uh, software app to be used by many of the uh, Chinese people in China. In fact, uh, as, as I was um, participating in the subcommittee in international human rights, I learned that there have been Uyghur Chinese who've been in jail, uh, being re-educated just for having uh, a WhatsApp, which is not sanctioned, um, installed on their cell phone. So WeChat is a official endorsed um, software that to be installed and to be used by all Chinese. And uh, it is important to understand that uh, the Chinese government also therefore would have very tight control of messagings. Um, there has been, um, you know, people have been saying that uh, there are no uh, messages that are being passed in WhatsApp or in WeChat um, that are not endorsed and agreed by the Chinese government. So all messaging that has been circulated in WeChat uh, would have been approved. And during the federal election 2021, we've seen articles that, uh, as I said, um, completely mischaracterizing uh, or even telling lies about uh, uh, certain Canadian political parties or certain Canadian political uh, candidates. Can you, in about 15 seconds, tell me what your impression is of that exchange between Mr. Xi and Mr. Trudeau? Oh, I, I, think, I think Mr. Trudeau is actually very smart and clever, and he realized that the, the exchange is not going to materialize in anything substantial. So he, his target audience is actually Canadian. He wants to be seen as somebody who's, uh, who's strong against China, who's been standing firm of the, of the, on the Canadian values. So he said whatever he wants to say. Um, it's, it's just a show uh, for Mr. Trudeau. And I think he, uh, you know, done a good job in that, just say okay. whatever. But it's important to, 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 uh, to understand that at the end of the conversation, Xi Jinping actually said, how naive this guy. My friend went out today to uh, buy a prime rib roast. Eight pounds. It was for a special family dinner. And the butcher said $200. So that's 25 bucks a pound. And the prime rib roast stayed in the butcher shop. 
But it got me to thinking about, and we were going to do this program anyway, this segment, but it really brought home the inflationary trend that's taking place as far as food is concerned in this country. And we're going to talk about that now, the cause for the inflationary trend in which foods remain or have become most affected by food inflation. You know, we're four weeks away from Christmas. So what should we expect as far as the cost of Christmas food staples are concerned? Plus, there's another story. Licenses granted for the creation of lab-grown food, including meat. I just can't wrap my head around that one. Uh, And there's a survey which shows who is willing to eat lab-grown meats. And there's also a grocer's code of conduct coming up. Sylvain Charlebois is director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory and professor at Dalhousie University. Professor Charlebois is going to be testifying before the Parliamentary Agriculture Committee next week. Sylvain, thank you for coming on the program. What do you make of that 200 bucks for a prime rib? (laughs) I wouldn't buy it. Uh, There there are lots of deals out there, really. You have to look uh, really carefully and... uh, you can find deals. You just have to be a little bit more careful. Uh, obviously, this one place uh, deals with uh, uh, certain areas, certain independent abattoirs, and that tends to drive prices higher. Some specialty shops uh, will offer uh, different prices. Uh, again, we don't know about the quality of the product at all. I assume it's of good quality. And the one thing we tend to forget about high prices is that you often compare apples with oranges, and uh, it's lots of different products out there, and, and people tend to believe, well, this piece of meat is very expensive. Well, perhaps it, it actually was produced very carefully, uh, a certain way. Uh, it's a specialized piece of product, so we just have to be a little bit more careful. But there are some good deals out there. Uh, it's just You just need to look around. Okay, so I was just wondering whether that particular price and that particular incident reflects what's happening as far as the inflationary trend of food pricing is concerned at this time. Uh, well, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think right now we, we heard a couple of weeks ago that the uh, food inflation rate in Canada is at 10.3%. Uh, although I should actually I should add, Roy, that uh, Canada's food inflation rate is the second lowest uh, amongst G7 countries, uh, right after Japan, we're number two. So in the grand scheme of things, we're not doing too badly, but still 10.3% is huge. And it means that some products are much higher than that, over 15 20%. That's probably what people are seeing right now, uh, because, again, our food inflation rate exceeds has exceeded the general inflation rate for 12 consecutive months. And that's why people are still sticker-shocked. Uh, Areas where we're seeing prices really skyrocketing right now, bakery, dairy, uh, and produce. And uh, a lot of people are talking about lettuce these days. Yeah, what's, what's happening with lettuce? California. Uh, California is drying up. Uh, a virus really uh, disrupted uh, crops uh, over, over the last few months. And so they're not able to export as much as uh, as they as they did in the past. So uh, we're just waiting for the Arizona Mexico cycle to take over. So we should be fine for the holidays. And if you see a head of lettuce at fourteen dollars, just walk away. Uh, frankly, it's it, that's what retailers are doing. They're either charging the price that they're paying or a little bit more. Uh, and in food service, uh, we're seeing a lot of operators just not offering salads. At all. 
Yeah, I've got all these dressings and no salad to put them on. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's what it, people are running into. Yeah, right? so it's, it's pretty tricky right now, but uh, people are waiting. I, I think we're going to start seeing some uh, lettuce coming from Arizona in a couple of weeks. Okay. So a couple of weeks from now, four weekends from now is Christmas weekend. What should the average person be expecting as far as Christmas staples are concerned? So maybe they haven't bought a turkey yet. And, and I know you were going to talk about that in, uh, as well, yeah. the, the availability of turkeys. But w- w- let's include that in the answer, if you don't mind, Sylvan. But what should the average person be expecting as far as food costs are concerned for the staples for Christmas dinner? So let's start with proteins. Uh, so if you're into turkey, I'd buy it now. If you haven't already, I would buy it now because it's likely going to increase in price due to what's going on with the avian flu. The avian flu is hitting many, many. There's over uh, 60 investigations going on right now. 60 farms are impacted by the avian flu right now. I actually think that the CFIA and provinces are actually managing the situation quite well, but we're still losing birds. So supply is going to be an issue, and prices are going to go up. So if you're into birds, you absolutely need a turkey for Christmas. Uh, you're not going to find large birds, but I would buy one as soon as possible because uh, prices are only going to go up. If you think that turkey is too expensive, go for ham. Pork, uh, pork is actually up only 5% year to year. Uh, pork is, uh, is a good deal right now. So uh, I would certainly encourage people to look at pork a little bit more closely. Okay. And uh, what's this uh, talk about? I mean, it's more than talk. The, the fact of lab-grown food. So I'm trying to think of getting my... <laughs> okay. So I'm thinking about lab-grown chicken sitting yeah. on, on my plate. And I, I'm I'm a I'm old school. I like to be able to separate the chicken meat from the bone. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't want to. Wouldn't try. What, what's that? Chicken? Would you? Well, I know I wouldn't. <laughs> Chances are, Roy, you're over forty-five years old. Chances are uh, over forty-five. So Canadians that are forty-five years old or or older wouldn't uh, aren't interested. They're probably. You know, listening to this conversation and saying, yuck, it's disgusting. That's one but word. Under the age of 45, uh, almost 80% of Canadians would be willing to try lab-grown meat. So mm. what we learned last week is that the Food and Drugs Administration just approved uh, the commercialization of lab-grown chicken. So we are, we're only waiting for the USDA, the USDA to do the same. And once, once the USDA approves lab-grown chicken... Well, uh, it's going to be allowed uh, to be commercialized in the U.S. And so the question that we are asking ourselves, when is this going to happen in Canada? And I, I say, Roy, probably within the next five years, we could actually see lab-grown chicken being approved in Canada. Do we still call it chicken? Well, it's the same, it's the same protein. So for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the process, it's, it's pretty simple. You basically take... Uh, chicken cells from a live chicken uh, with a biopsy or an egg, and you basically, instead of feeding an animal farm on the, on the farm, you're basically feeding cells in a lab, in a cultivator. That's basically the difference. And so at the end of the day, the product is the same. It's not, it's not fake meat. It's basically the same proteins, but the process to, to multiply cells is 
it's just different. We call it cellular agriculture, essentially. Hmm. It's got that Frankenstein sound to it, so I'm not so sure that, that I, I, I may I, I may try it when, when it's available. I'll give it a try. I mean, honestly, this technology is really interesting, and from an environmental perspective, the case is very strong. Mm-hmm. For people who are concerned about animal welfare, uh, suppose, also yeah. a very, very strong case. But here's the deal. Uh I think the labeling issue is going to be a big one. I, I think people should should know what they're buying. If we are to allow these products to be commercialized, yeah. we should label uh, lab-grown chicken. Right now, we have genetically modified salmon being commercialized in Canada, and it's not labeled at all. You and I may have actually eaten genetically modified salmon without knowing, and that's, yeah. that's wrong. That is wrong. And I eat a lot yeah. of salmon, so yeah, I'd like to exactly. know. So uh, what's happening now with the grocer's code of conduct? What, what can you tell us about what's expected? It's not out yet, but what, what's expected? I feel pretty optimistic, to be honest, Roy. A couple of months ago, I wasn't uh, overly optimistic, but uh, there's been some really great progress. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, who are involved with the process uh, are telling me some, some, good, some good news. Uh, we actually are expecting some sort of announcement before the holidays. And this grocer code of conduct will allow suppliers to get along better with with grocers and avoid these stop sell feuds that we saw uh, earlier this year. It's, it's still happening. The the, the Frito Lay Loblaw uh, stop sell is is probably the one that most people are 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 familiar with. But uh, but overall, I actually think it's important to stop the supply chain bullying within the supply chain. Now we'll actually stabilize prices and will significantly reduce any chances of collusion. And that's why I think Canadians should care about this grocery code of conduct. It will just help the food industry um, do, a, do a better job in innovating and providing, uh, provide really decent, affordable prices over the long term. So final question for you, so then what happens now as far as, is there any way to project or predict what's going to happen as far as food inflation is concerned? Are we going to continue to see it going up and prices becoming more difficult to deal with? Or do you see some sort of solution not too far down the road? Well, Canada's food price report is coming out on December 5th, so not uh, not Monday tomorrow, uh, the Monday after. So uh, mark your calendars. Uh, December 5th will provide you with all the forecasts you need for 2023. It's not over. There are a lot of people who think because the inquiry, the public part of it, ended on uh, Friday, that it's all over. Now we just wait for the commissioner to issue the report. It's not over. Not nearly. Um, This coming week, there are going to be round tables in Ottawa, and our guest is scheduled to testify at two of them. Our guest is Professor Christian Liprecht, Queen's University and Royal Military College. He, as you know, is an expert in security and defense, regularly called as an expert witness before the committees of parliament, and his most recent book is Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. There's another book we're going to be talking with Professor Liprecht about in a few weeks, which is really going to catch your attention. Christian, thank you, um, for coming back on the program. I'm, after the six weeks, I'm not quite sure where to start. There's been so much said, and I have asked so many questions, but I'm going to try with this one. So everybody knew the convoy was headed for Ottawa. Let's go back to before they got there. And over many years, police agencies in this country 
have learned how to deal with crowds. They've learned how to clear venues. We've seen that. But in the nation's capital, we had a few thousand protesters, and they were noisy with their trucks. They were there for three weeks, but they weren't effectively cleared. What what happened? I sound like a five-year-old. What happened, Dad? I think what we saw here was fundamentally a breakdown of the ability of a G7 country to be able to enforce the rule of law. Um, And we saw a system that came under modest stress from um, a few thousand people that showed up well-organized, well-led, well-financed with the optimal protest machines in the middle of winter in Canada for February, that is to say trucks where you can hunker down for quite a period of time. Um, And we saw an organizational chaos among the agencies involved. Um, We saw the confirmation that Canadian police agencies are well equipped for incident response. They're not able to sustain that response. Um, And we saw rather than a willingness by local, provincial and federal leaders to stand together and to send a clear message, each level of government looking to capitalize politically on the circumstances um, and not being able to provide the direction of leadership that is ultimately required when police are dealing with a political protest. And so now we're trying to point the fingers everywhere, but the people who ultimately need to own this, which is the politicians. And I think one of the things that the commission has revealed is that our law enforcement, intelligence, national security legislation, posture, leadership, management, and institutional culture simply not fit for purpose for the 21st century. Yeah. So when I was asking that first question, I realized that it's so fundamental. And that's the question we should have been dealing with all along, going back to that. What happened? And I know the finger's been pointed at the OPS, the Ottawa Police Service. The finger's been pointed at the RCMP. The finger's been pointed at the OPP. They've pointed the finger at each other. But they clearly have the experience to clear crowds. So you talked about political opportunism. May not be the word you used, but that was, I think, what you were getting at. So here's the question that people are asking, and I've received the emails over and over and over with this question or this point. The federal government arguably might be seen to have wanted a confrontational situation during which it could invoke the Emergencies Act in order to create a political dynamic that's going to be advantageous, potentially, if managed properly, to the government, to the Liberal Party. Is that is that an overly cynical viewpoint that some, maybe many people have? We certainly saw the government capitalizing on this further to polarize political debate in this country. Uh, and that, at a moment that required national unity, was, I think, an unfortunate, uh, an unfortunate move. But really, if you're invoking the Emergencies Act, by definition, that suggests that regular tools available to you in legislation, in intelligence, in law enforcement are insufficient to deal with the situation at hand. Now, let's step back for a moment and take a breath here. In Europe, we regularly have demonstrations that involve tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of protesters. Think of some of the mass demonstrations, for instance, by unions in France. Think of May Day uh, protests in Germany that often turn violent, especially in Berlin. 
And yet it seems police are perfectly capable to respond to those protests with the tools at hand. Nobody's invoking emergency measures. Similarly, if we need to stop financial transactions that governments deem um, illegal or possibly supporting uh, illicit, illegal or criminal activity, governments in the United Kingdom, in Australia, in Germany, in France, in the United States, have the legislative toolkits to be able to do that. Nobody needs to invoke any emergencies. So I think what we can learn here is that what the government has to own is that for years it has resisted bringing our apparatus in line with the challenges that we face in the 21st century. And so rather than thinking about why is it that we ultimately fell short, and look, there was a clear debate here within government, within law enforcement, whether the tools are available. And I think the agreement was that the tools and the resources are available, but it would have just taken a little bit longer. But I think what ultimately happened here, that it became a political liability for the federal government. And yes, was the Emergency Act necessary? Probably not. Did it help with reestablishing the rule of order? It sure did. But look, how can we blame a little police force in Ottawa with 1,200 members of whom 800 are possibly deployable at any given time for not being able to police a national protest? This is why we have a national police force with 17,000 members. When I ask time again and again why we have this uh, massive national police force that does everything from writing liquor tickets to investigating some of the most complex financial crime uh, imaginable, the answer is always, so we have surge capacity. Well, where was that surge capacity? The OPP was in Ottawa within days, but it appeared to take... Um, a, a significant period of time for the RCMP to come, not just with the manpower, with the staff, but also the logistics functions, the intelligence functions, the planning functions to support this type of a national operation. And we're not talking about a provincial capital in Toronto. We're not talking about uh, Windsor. We're talking about the national capital uh, where we presumably after the shooting up of parliament by Zihaf Bibo in 2014, we could have expected that we might have a national emergency for which we might need to be prepared. And yet it seemed when we actually needed resources and capacities that by and large only a federal government can bring to bear, those federal resources took far too long to appear. The water cannons are a 15-minute drive from downtown. The RCMP has much of its mounted unit, for instance, in Ottawa. There were resources that could have been drawn on. And the question is, why were, did those resources not materialize? Is that simply because policing made a judgment that they shouldn't be deployed? Or is it perhaps because politically it was decided that those resources uh, cannot or should not be deployed or should not be deployed at this particular time or in this particular way? Clearly, I think there was a lack of leadership with regards to that the behavior we saw um, in Ottawa, some of this behavior was not acceptable and that some measure to reestablish the rule of law was required. Mm -hmm. Based on what you just said, or the last answer you gave, I went back and, and looked at a question that's been recurring from the very beginning, not surprisingly, and the question was this. 
Do we believe that invoking the Emergencies Act this year by Mr. Trudeau was unequivocally necessary and that there were no other existing policing options or federal statutes which would have served to defuse what Canada was facing on the 14th of February 2022? I just heard you talk about a 17,000-member national police force with a significant presence in the city of Ottawa, which is where the issue, the concern that was raised time and again, other than Coots and, and Ambassador Bridge, and they'd broken up by the 14th. That was raised time and again. So did I hear you say the resources were there, you just chose not to use them? Um, and I think that's hopefully one of the answers that we're going to get from the commission about what decisions were made about resources, when, where, and by whom. And it seems in this particular case, nobody really wanted to make any sort of decisions at the political level. Um, at least initially. And so that meant the police were sort of left in kind of in a limbo of trying to figure out what should they be doing because police are ultimately reticent when it comes to political protests because police know that there is no law enforcement answer to political protests. There's only a political answer to those protests. And so there was no political answer. And so we were scrambling. And ultimately, commanders on the ground did come up with a plan once they got the signal that they actually do need to come up with a plan. Um, and uh, But it appeared that when initially um, the chief of the Ottawa Police Service made it clear that he was in over his head, uh, it seems it took us a significant period of time to figure out who was going to be able to assist whom when. And I think that is disgraceful in a national capital, because by definition, when you're in a national capital, you need to count on the, on the fact that you're going to find yourself in a circumstance where you're going to require national resources in order to assert national security. Um, and I don't think any of those resources would have been necessary if federal agencies had provided the requisite intelligence at the right time to the Ottawa Police Service, and we had been able to stand up a response that would have involved the right federal, provincial, and local elements, including the appropriate planning that should have never left to the point where 400 trucks ended up pulling up, uh, pulling off the 417 and uh, ending up in downtown Ottawa. And so I think we need to ask hard questions about how did we get to the point where we had these protesters downtown? How is it that the response was so lagging um, that the federal government felt in the end it had no other option than to suspend some of the regular measures in place um, to give uh, police and intelligence agencies and banks powers that in other normal democracies are available to these institutions uh, under regular legislative uh, capacities. And how is it that uh, going forward here, we have not seen, for instance, major legislative changes, major changes in resourcing. Um, there have been some changes at the Ontario level uh, in how uh, Ontario police now respond to protests, uh, but I have yet to see any significant changes coming out of the federal government, out of the RCMP, out of the way that federal intelligence agencies liaise with provincial and local agencies. And I think one of the takeaways here is that this protest shows to the extent to which local and provincial agencies often end up getting, uh, uh, are left holding the bag because the federal agencies are so territorial that um, they're not prepared or willing to cooperate to the extent that would be necessary. And that, again, requires political leadership. Yeah. I tweeted earlier this week, we've had two major inquiries in Canada 
in 2022. One was the mass casualty inquiry in Nova Scotia. It became uh, an issue of great national consternation, debate, accusation. The victims' families were threatening to leave because they were so disenchanted with what was going on. So that one has been mishandled. And now this one, uh, ongoing, the, uh, the the commission investigating the invoking of the Emergencies Act. So what exactly is going to go forward? What are the roundtables that you're going to be testifying at in the next few days? What are they about? So the roundtables dig into some of the common themes that sort of developed uh, over recent weeks. So the issues around criminal law, around policing powers, the relationship between police governance and political authority, um, such as who can direct police, freedom of expression and peaceful assembly, issues of cryptocurrency and some of the international supply chain issues. So these are um, complex elements here. I will have the opportunity to testify tomorrow um, on the financial measures that were taken, uh, which were surprising given that um, um, the the challenges of financial crime in this country are very well known. The Colin Commission in British Columbia uh, has reported on these extensively, and yet it seems that um, uh, the, this government, uh, to some extent previous governments, have been unprepared to take the measures necessary. And so I think one of the things we learned from the convoy uh, uh, protests is uh, just how unprepared our financial intelligence system and, our, uh, and how unprepared we are to investigate uh, financial illegal criminal um, um, and economic crime and, and related measures. And on Thursday, I'll be testifying on the roundtable on policing. Um, and one of the points that I will make there is that the convoy response revealed uh, to what extent policing in this country uh, is in real trouble when it comes to police leadership, it comes to police management, it comes to police institutional culture, and it comes to policing posture. Um, and so that we need to take seriously what unfolded uh, in Ottawa because uh, it speaks to the many greater challenges uh, that we have in policing in this country and how urgently we need a significant reform uh, to law enforcement um, and policing um, federally, provincially, and locally. We started last weekend with Jack Jedwab, the president of the Association for Canadian Studies, and they released their national poll, which was conducted by Leger, and they asked Canadians, the association did ask Canadians, how we nationally feel about immigration numbers. And we know that by 2025, the federal government plans to see the immigration numbers at 500,000 per year, just over 400,000 in this past year. And there's a lot of statistics that go along with that can be compared to what's happening in other countries, particularly G7 and G20 countries. We can do that another time, and we will. But let's have a look at what the response has been in Canada to this particular move by the federal government. And the Association for Canadian Studies found, and uh, the executive vice president of Leger suggested that the 75% of poll respondents, now think about this, 75% of Canadians agreed that they were very or somewhat concerned that the plan to raise the immigration numbers to 500,000 would result in excessive demand for housing as well as health and social services. That's 75%, three out of four Canadians saying they are very or somewhat concerned that this plan, this number, would result in the excessive demand for housing as well as health and social services. This is even though the federal government tells us, look, there's a million jobs that need to be filled. And there's skilled international labor. And these skilled international 
individuals want to come to Canada, so we will fast-track them and bring them here. But you still have three out of four Canadians expressing concerns that this is not going to be necessarily good for the country. Now, uh, Leger says, in part, in good, positive economic times, before the pandemic hit, these numbers might be different. But, says Bork, now I think there's a growing concern of how far and how much we can afford. The government might need to do a better job to explain the benefits of immigration to average Canadians, they're saying. A little more here, then we'll introduce our guest. Opinions were more divided over the number of immigrants uh, the government plans to admit, with 49% saying it was too many, 31 saying it was the right number, 5% it was not enough, and the rest didn't know. Why is there always that category of people? Well, maybe they're being honest. So immigration is always an issue that people um, have many and varied opinions on. But this one, Richard Curland, is one of this country's most respected immigration lawyers. He's in Vancouver. He's advised the federal government and the Quebec government because Quebec has its own immigration rules. Like Quebec had to vote on whether the sun was going to rise in the east or the west, and they decided it was going to be the east. Otherwise, we'd all be seeing the sunrise in the west. Am I being a little too uh, cynical, Richard? <laughs> Never. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that Quebec always gets their own way. But you have, you've advised the federal and the provincial governments. You know the story. You know the story of this poll. Canadians, by and large, are favorably disposed toward immigration. But at this time, with the challenges we face economically, the, the, the inflationary trend, the interest rates rising, with people struggling to, you know, to fill their fridges and, and fill their vehicles on the same day, three out of four are saying they are very or somewhat concerned this plan to raise the numbers to 500,000, the federal government's argument notwithstanding, would result in excessive demand for housing as well as on health and social services. How do you interpret this? Well, they, they left off the most important part, <laughs> the biggest change in Canadian immigration policy has been to wave bye-bye to the decades-old method of welcome to Canada, get off the plane and go look for a job and a house. So when someone's pitching half a million new immigrants, the public is thinking, what the heck? Where are we going to put another half million people? Wrong, wrong, wrong. These half million people are already here, living in Canada with temporary status. The biggest change ever uh, to our immigration system is that now you're just not going to be able to immigrate unless you're already living here, already paying taxes, already working or studying. In other words, big picture, you take the Band-Aid off the forehead that says temporary status and you slap on a brand new Band-Aid that says permanent resident status. So the thought that in a couple years we're going to receive half a million new folk is dead wrong. Dead wrong. And here's what Canada did to its credit. A few years ago, we decided to increase the floating 
temporary status population. Pre-COVID, 2 million people. Temporary status, working here, living here. And so that's our pool. 2 million plus, and of the 2 million, over time, we're going to scoop out a couple hundred thousand here and there, up to 500,000 over uh, the years. No, housing is not going to be adversely impact. Our strategy has <laughs> delivered completely the opposite result of disaster. It's been a success here in the left coast. Guess who's living in those basements that uh, are mortgage helpers? Same thing for Greater 905416. The foreign students, when they got cut because of COVID, that caused a cash flow crunch. The foreign students who were unable to work here, that caused a reduction in labor supply. So I don't know who's selling the popcorn, but the idea that, uh oh, we're going to let too many people in is just dead wrong, plainly contradicts our immigration selection system today, because you have to be good enough to get here in the first place. You have to excel in human capital to be selected for permanent resident status. So we, we've done the right thing. We're on the right track. Someone fell asleep at the switch or just plain didn't tell the public uh, the, the accurate policies that are underlying our future immigration direction in this country. Okay, so what we're hearing, we're hearing the federal immigration minister say there's going to be an increase of 500,000 people coming into the country by 2025. We took in 400,000 this year, maybe 400,000 the year before. That's what people are responding to. You're saying they're already here, and what they're going to do is from the temp people who are here in temporary permits, as opposed to allowing 500,000 new immigrants to enter the country, they're going to transfer the, um, the status or change the status of the people who are temporary to permanent. And that's going to be counted. That's, so, Richard, that's going to be counted. No, hold on. Let me, ask, let me just be clear here. That is going to be counted as the new immigration number. Exactly. Exactly. So why don't they explain it that way? Well, I guess, uh, you know, they lost my phone number. What can I tell you? It, 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 it's that Nobody. Important. Look, you're the, you're, the, you're the only person who's... I haven't heard anybody else say this. So, well, I, I, I told some journalist buds when, when the, the story started to get out yeah. uh, from the real estate sector. I said, no, they've got it dead wrong. But um, So know, they're not... So they're not... How many, so how many newcomers to Canada are going to be brought to the country then? None? Well, we, we, we have been uh, puffing up our temporary status population. It's going to come back to that 2 million uh, sweet mark, sweet spot. And uh, from that, the deal is if the people want to immigrate, you know how hard it is today? You're going to have to already be working we're told, years. We're told there's a million jobs that need to be filled. Exactly. So how do you fill the million jobs? from the existing human capital already here. And I've been giving lectures on this for the last like uh, three months. It's the post-COVID economic restoration policy combined with a fight inflation economic policy, both using migration as the tool. Example, people here on study permits used to have a ceiling of 20 hours a week. Well, by ripping out that ceiling, the government overnight added hundreds of thousands 
of uh, students able to work 40 hours and more. And that's an automatic increase, dramatic increase in the labor supply of precisely the uh, vacancies that need filling. So it's that kind of creative uh, work uh, done by policy people in immigration that's going to drive in a positive way our real estate sector. The real estate sector demand isn't going to be increasing in downtown Vancouver, Toronto. It's the hinterland. Uh, we need greater values in real estate in our hinterland areas, and that's what the new immigration policy is all about. Yeah, but so uh, look, you get more points if you live there. Look, all I see though is the government saying five hundred thousand new people are going to be arriving in Canada in twenty twenty five. Well, I think that's bragging rights, political bragging rights. Both liberals and conservatives, for a couple decades <laughs> after the Christmas party and the third martini. We're hoping, can we be the party that will be able to say publicly, half a million immigrants, we broke the barrier. And now it's going to be the federal liberal party with those bragging rights uh, because they managed it, they did it, and it's on the agenda. So this is politically driven. What's so so how, so how should they respond then? So, so, so how should they respond to the Association for Canadian Studies finding? Mm. And maybe all the questions that are being asked are being wrong now, but based on what you've said. But how do they de- hold on? How do they deal with how do how do they deal with seventy five percent of Canadians on this poll saying they are very or somewhat concerned the plan would result in excessive demand for housing as well as health and social services? So if yeah. the government's going to let that slide by without you know explaining as you've explained, if that if in fact that is their policy, and far be it for me to ever question you, yeah. uh, but. Well, you know, I'd never do that. Stand up and do it. I mean, the health demands, first of all, the students have their own private health insurance. So that's not a demand. The foreign workers are paying into the system in taxes and Medicare premiums. That's not the excessive demand. So what's left? Uh, I, yeah. I don't get it. It's well, just, but no, no but what's 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 left is statements. you threw me a you threw me such a curveball here. If it were baseball, I would yeah. I would have struck out in a, in a heartbeat. And I used to hit a curveball pretty well. Um, yeah, I'm waiting for your slider. Well, you'd have to duck because all that wet stuff would come in <laughs> off the end of it. But uh, <laughs> I used to throw a spitball. Yeah. <laughs> well, it worked. But but we have a we have a story here. And it's been repeated again and again, and it's been pushed by the government that our immigration numbers are going up to 500,000 by 2025. And you're saying that's not going to happen because the immigrants they're going to count as coming to Canada in 2025 have already been here for years. That's it. I mean, who does really come uh, on that airplane into Canada? I don't know. Uh, for permanent residents who've not been here before? You've got um, spouses, so you've got maybe 10,000, 20,000 of those. And uh, other than that, it's a very small number of uh, permanent residents. It's de minimis, 2, 3, 4%. And maybe 10,000 10, <clears throat> or 15,000 privately selected or group uh, selected refugees. Okay. So well, they're, they're also raising the number of refugees, right, to 79,000. Yeah, the, the, the refugees, that's the job. You go into the camps and, and pick the brightest and the best if you can, and then, yeah. you know, you meet your quota. Okay. Uh, but by and large, the idea that you're coming for the first time to Canada as an immigrant and you got to look for a place to live and a job, 
that's just not happening. So somebody, so somebody's not telling us what, in plain well, language, explained. not to, not in plain language, not that that's never done before, but. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody's not telling us how it is, except for Richard Curlin. The story says, this survey that shows 75% of Canadians are concerned about the numbers of immigrants coming to Canada by 2025, half a million, says, um, based on the online survey, Canadians polled between November 11 and 13. The results come about two weeks after Ottawa unveiled plans to admit 500,000 immigrants per year starting in 2025 to address a critical labor shortage across the country. The government and industry have described the new targets, which represent a significant increase over the 405,000 immigrants admitted last year, as critical for filling about a million job vacancies across the country and to offset Canada's aging workforce. And Richard, I also have an email here saying, sorry, your immigration lawyer's dead wrong. The immigration target is new arrivals in Canada. In 2022, there were 492 new permanent residents arrivals, 205,000 temporary residents, and 190,000 temporary residents already in Canada were moved from TR to PR. Canada's population grew by 700,000 in 2022, of which only 40,000 was net natural growth. Over to you. Yeah, uh, the word arrivals was wrong. Uh, you, 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 you don't arriving at permanent residence. The overwhelming majority are already here, and you get your confirmation of uh, permanent residence landing by Zoom, and, and you don't leave the house. So arrival is the buzzword. That is the wrong word. So uh, it, as long as you pluck that off of the tapioca, you'll be fine. So we're arguing potato and potato. Yeah, it's just, you, you can't even apply for permanent residence uh, for one of those provincial... Okay, so, so let's, we only have a minute. So let's take your number hmm. and what you've explained to us. The 75% of Canadians who say they're worried that the, of the, the impact on housing, social services, and, um, and government services. So they have no, no reason to be concerned. Uh, I'm always concerned about those items, but they have no reason to be concerned based on um, incorrect information that the floodgates are opening and we're getting half a million new human beings on Canadian soil. Dead wrong. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.